Exes for Podcast is brought to you by the Cage Club Network. So for all things movies, music, media, comics, and more, check out Cage Club at cageclub.me. That's cageclub.me. guys moving on to chapter six of ten of swords that is issue number five of hellions written by zeb wells with art by carmen carnero color art by david curiel letters by vcs ariana mayer and design by tom muller of course the champions of Krakoa were selected to retrieve a special sword in order to participate in a cross-dimensional tournament against Araco. unsurprisingly none of the hellions were among chosen but that doesn't mean they don't have a role to play in the ensuing conflict and i don't know i think that it's a little short-sighted to believe that this plan might actually come to fruition. I think that it's an excellent utilization of the Hellions. I think that this is exactly the type of mission that they are designed for, and so I applaud whoever came up with this in the nick of time, given we're only five issues into Hellion. That was excellent plotting. But do you really think that you can steal the Swords of Araco? Like, do you really think that that's how this is gonna go? That you're gonna get out of this on a mulligan? Oh, no, no, no. Upaluna Saturn, I would not let something like that happen. <laughs> and like I feel like there's some sort of like precognizance you know to her like I feel like part of her like knows that this is happening or should know that this is happening I really think she knows all of it's happening at some point right oh yeah, no she has eyes on everywhere and if it's not specifically her eyes it's one of her followers like this is it is not going to be a stroll to uh, the city of Oz there's going to be a wicked witch of the west and her name is Opaluna Saturnine and she's going to send her flying monkeys and <laughs> they're all going to fall asleep in a poppy field I mean they're halfway to the poppy field right now so um i think the biggest star of this issue and as someone who should never be a star because he treats himself like one uh is empath empath that's your that's your primo who's like super aggressive and you don't we don't talk to him oh my god i love him like that's the one that like you don't really invite to to the family gatherings but you kind of have to because everyone's invited to them and you're like oh manuel showing up uh uh and you kind of have to pause a bit that's who empath is uh and i love him and i love him and i you're not you're not supposed to but they make him so lovable oh i love the big grand like resurrection scene right where it really got evokes the first scene we see in Hawksbox where we first like see the pods at all and he like wakes up and like charles is like what's your name Charles? and he's like fuck off charles yeah what's your right? name what's what's your name killed me i think this entire exchange was just too clever by half um you know when he spits on the ground and she goes come on this is a sterile environment and he says hatch somebody who gives a fuck i think that's just like you know not the height of comedy but really just too clever by half okay when she t- when hope told him to go out the back door i was like oh my god <laughs> that's so funny honestly it's, this whole the whole issue had me rolling 
I think I I completely agree. I think this was an excellent use of comedy. Whether it's I, there, the, I think there are so many comedic moments. I don't know if anybody else found it as funny as I did, but Orphan Maker like crying and holding on to <laughs> Nanny, being like, "But, but, but he's dead, right?" Like, oh my <laughs> god, yeah. that that made me hyster- hysterical uh, fit. Uh, everyone voting in the council voting for Sinister to be the leader and lead the Hellions. <laughs> yeah. He's like, wait, what? Yes. Um, Mr. Sinister going uh, doing Rochambeau with his clone <laughs> and then being like, well, I don't really want to do that. Should we do it the, you know, the noble way? Best two out of three? No, I said the noble way. It, I, you know, for a group of misfits to have their own misfits within, which uh, isn't a shocker, I think they did a really good job of making this what is meant to be a very serious mission super lighthearted and hysterical. Yeah. See, oh. I feel like it was absolutely needed. Like, Ten oh, of Swords is getting real serious. We just talked about Marauders with Storm um, having a lot of emotional leverage, or I don't know the word I'm looking for. We just had Storm having a large emotional uh, comic book, and now we're getting some comedy, especially after those, like, Wolverine chapters. It's nice to have some levity in the situation. That way it doesn't get, like, just too depressing, too intense. I, I thought it was definitely a good break from that. Absolutely. Yeah. Especially with such a gritty storytelling and this high-stakes, serious problem that the X-Men are now facing, having some levity and that break of that tension allows people to, you know, you breathe and you're like, okay, and now I can get back to it. It's why you'll see comedy in, you know, more heavy, not so much heavy dramas, but more like horror films and certain certain dramas that they'll add some comedy, whether it's intentional or not, to help break that tension so you can then re, you know, once you break the tension, you can now build it back stronger. You can get people back in the mood and more interested because if something is just too scary or too dramatic, Eventually, you're gonna be like, oh, "Well, I can't sit through all of this." <laughs> yeah, no, 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 no. Oh my gosh, yeah. Like after, like, hey, I just portrayed Wakanda. Like, let's get the funny episode. It's like the musical episode that's in the middle of a really heavy season. The musical episode or the beach episode. <gasps> oh yeah. Everyone, oh, go- everyone goes to the beach. Everyone has a musical, and also everybody goes to the mall. That's another one. The shopping episode. I want a musical beach shopping episode. Oh my gosh, so much. <laughs> Starring Sinister. Uh, yeah, he'd be like the Dr. Frankenfurter kind of musical guy. Yes. Oh, now I need someone to draw that uh, Rocky Horror Picture Show with mutants and Mr. Sinister. Chongo! Is, is, I know, right? <laughs> Chongo, please. Okay. Um, <laughs> another exchange that I really loved just in, in cementing this levity was uh, John Gray Crow, as he, as he would have you pronounce it. Yes. John Gray Crow explaining to Nanny and Orphan Maker, more specifically Orphan Maker, uh, the logistics of how mutant resurrection works and the way that Empath is both technically dead and not dead. It's like when you had one uncle who was like probably an atheist and just a, a little bit too unaware of the fact that you were like six years old when you're like, what happens when we die, Uncle John? <laughs> oh, well, son, fuck all nothing. And, you're like, and then you you repeat that back at dinner and it's just a nightmare it's like no you die and you're dead what 
Yeah, it's like I, I remember it was explained to me as think of when a video game ends, and I was like, that's depressing. I'm oh years, no, I'm six <laughs> years old. I'm six years old. The worst thing that happens in my life is when a video game ends. So the video games end. You get a game over screen. Do you get to continue? Do you just get a quick game? Like, I would like to think that it's just an eternity of floating above like the continue screen. Oh no, no, no ability to like insert credit. <laughs> when Orphan Maker calls John Gray Crow Gray cow i almost lost it though like oh my god that's oh, so funny but oh because yeah, he forgot great cow um <laughs> one other just very f- amazing moment with manuel is when he comes back he's i'm back piggies yes. nothing yes. well fuck you too like, <laughs> like how, oh my god this book was so unserious and i i completely have to agree with you evelyn just to just to echo the segment one more that it was so needed it really was just to have this really fun ridiculous issue jamie stealing mr sinister's cape them you know <laughs> being forced to take this horse <laughs> he stole from somebody else oh ja- jamie convinced his underling was in love with horses and grew up with horses He's like no wait that was me <laughs> Okay, whoever decided to put Nanny on the fucking horse is a fucking genius. Like, I'm like, oh my god, Humpty Dumpty. I was like, Nanny, don't fall. You know, it, <laughs> it's, uh, and, and maybe it's just a testament to Otherworld being the location, but this issue felt a little bit uh, reminiscent of some of the recent issues of Excalibur to me. Just that very Renfair vibe that I got from it all. The human oh. vibe also felt more like the classic Excalibur too. That like kind of what I've been missing in a little bit of the new Excalibur, like that humor element along with the mysticism, magicism. Uh, so I was like, oh my god, I love this. Absolutely, and I think I think part of that too is why it feels very some reminiscent of Excalibur is that. Other issues tended to have a mission drawn out for so long, or there were multiple missions or multiple narratives being talked about. Here in Hellions, it feels like, okay, they got their goal, and they're now going on that goal. And that's something I appreciate. So I'm excited to see what happens, because it's not going to be all roses and tulips. They're probably going to be pushing some daisies, Ooh. if I'm to be frank, because they do know what will the, the stakes. Uh, <laughs> uh, was there any other... Oh, I, we can talk about the... Um, these other world nations of Avalon and Dryador. So Avalon, right? So that's usually when we think of other world, that's usually the other world realm that we kind of have seen the most of, right? So, um, you know, when they talk about, you know, it used to be under Merlin's protection, you know, Arthur Pendragon was the regent of it for the longest time. And, you know, all the different changes that we've seen, it's really the other world. Avalon is really the other world that we've been most exposed to. Um, it was nice to get that little overview history, almost like a nice little like handbook kind of feel to it. Um, nothing really new that we didn't know, but it's just I, I love seeing it in context with the rest of other world proper. Absolutely. It was really it was a, I think it was a really good refresher for everybody who hasn't previously read Excalibur things or anything that had to do with Captain Britain and other world. So it was really nice to be like, OK, this is the quick abridged version of what happened. And we pick up in the history of Avalon when Morgan Le Fay is in power. So it's really interesting to be able to read all of it and see, OK, this is exactly what happened. I think 
I'm also surprised and a little intrigued that the people love Jamie because I don't think anybody <laughs> loves Jamie. I think he made Not him. Jamie. <laughs> uh, yeah, let's let's Jamie being one of the most powerful mutants, being an omega level mutant with re- reality warping powers. You know, he can basically do whatever he wants and get away with it and be happy and smile about it. I, but didn't he turn Betsy into a rat at one point and then turn her back? Or did I made that up? Uh, he might have. I, I just like whenever I, I think have of a big recollection of it. Like whenever I think of his powers, I think of that of Excalibur era fifty. Like when they killed Alice Dane, uh, that era where um, there's like the big party. He's got Vixen, who's Nigel Forbrusher, uh, but she turns into he turns into the criminal Vixen, and he's got the original Vixen on her lap. Like just the strings, I love the string aspect of his powers and how he like pulls the string. Oh, absolutely! You know the strings of reality, and he just plucks them and he does whatever he wants. Uh, so I, I was fascinated with that little history tour of Avalon. And then getting to know more about, you know, the original horseman, Apocalypse's original horseman, who now said, Dad, no more. We're in charge. Oh, and issues. The, don't we all? I <laughs> I, I was going to do, for my friends, I was going to do a uh, presentation. and be like, these are the X-Men that I love and everyone should know about. And I was going through a couple of them. I'm like, Daddy issues? Daddy issues? Daddy <laughs> issues? Yeah, okay, no, literally. One of the unifying things of the X-Men is they all, almost all of them have daddy issues. Yeah. It's, hey, um, would you be a superhero, right? Oh, pr- pretty much. Where, where are the mommy issues? <laughs> <laughs> or the parental issues? Like, where are the other, why is it always, anyway. <laughs> um... It was really interesting because I think part of the fiefdom of Amneth that was previously Dryador, Dryador has, I think, the shortest page and doesn't give us a lot of information. And I, we're talking about all these other, you know, locations within Otherworld, all these other countries with their regents. It almost makes me feel like there's a lot of information being hidden away because we're going to be spending at least a decent amount of time there to understand what's going on. I mean, it's where two of the two of the horsemen are. So I would imagine that they're going to have to stop there eventually to get their swords. Oh, yeah. Oh, my gosh. No, I wonder if um, Dryador has a similar relationship, like, because, you know, Avalon is very tied to Britain. I wonder if Dryador has its own an- analog in maybe just like a, cro- a, a Racco itself, or, you know, if, if there's something, some land that is super tied to that its health is um, dependent on. That was the other thing I found so interesting of the relationship between Otherworld, Avalon, and Britain. And when Britain, when Avalon prospers, Britain prospers. And when Avalon's under fire, Britain feels that heat. So does that extend to every other, you know, every other country in the other world? Is there another location? Death and all their siblings, death, famine, war, and pestilence all consider the previous Dryad or, you know, an extension of Arako. But with this land being taken over by, you know, the four horsemen, is there some place on Earth that's really feeling the effects of it? Ooh, that's a good point. I didn't even think of that. It's like, I, I, is it like, you know, a uh, war-torn land where nothing can grow when everyone's dying of disease? Like, America. <laughs> <laughs> okay, you know why? That makes so much sense. Okay, so I think we have, we have our mission. We have to go to Dryador, and we have to restore it back to its previous state. And then, you know, America will flourish. Yes. 
that's our goal. Okay. Got to get our sword bearers and cheeseburgers. <laughs> and cheeseburgers too. So. And cheeseburgers, a good cheeseburger. Okay. Um, <laughs> anything else on Hellions? Oh, I have two things I was thinking of. So one, I love the the last page, like the last few pages where Impasse got control of Gray Crow, and like Gray Crow is just like Manuel de la Rocha is a genius. sinister's like oh shit this isn't gonna go um the other thing i was thinking of is like i love quanin being a central figure in hellions sometimes it's hard for me to distinguish quanin as a character from betsy psylocke as a character and that's that's the only like little minor thing that bugs me about hellion so far but um, I'd love to see a little bit more of a differentiate differentiation between their personalities. You know, I, I don't think that having both characters journey through Avalon and then Opaluna's uh, area of Otherworld was quite a great idea in that sense, because I feel like that only invites the comparison between the two and invites the, the well, comparison between the two. <laughs> Oh gosh, yeah. Yeah, so something that I really wish we got to see a little bit more, not that I didn't really enjoy this issue, I would have loved to see at least a little more dialogue and being the second in command to the Hellions from Quanin. She felt a little quiet this issue, and granted it's a pretty big team, so not everyone's going to be able to get to have their moments, but having her have, I think, maybe one or two more moments in the spotlight of either, you know, reining in the other Hellions, making sure that they're following Sinister's orders or giving out her own orders herself, I think that would have helped solidify more characterization for this character who I think deserves justice for, I don't know, how, what is it, like 30 years of... Oh my gosh, yeah. I don't, I don't even know how to describe it, just 30 years of, we all know the incident. <laughs> Not looking at you, Betsy, yeah. we're looking at you, Spiral. <laughs> oh, Oh, Spiral, who's hanging out in the Mojoverse. <laughs> oh, she she's doing something with those six arms. <laughs> I don't know what what it is, but she's doing something. Um, oh, the possibilities. Like I, <laughs> there was a lot of great, like funny moments, but I don't know if there was a lot of meat to this. It was just them getting their mission and then going to oh we did learn that i don't think anybody was maybe too surprised by this but sinister has an illegal cloning farm under his bar right i mean that was wow that was big like i wonder like if the sinister clones come back like if he say the hellions die and he has to clone them are they going because you can't use cerebro to back them up so like does he have some kind of memory kind of installer at the same time too or is it just going to be like a clone which you could do with the shell i think that they're definitely clones and i say this because if i'm remembering correctly in fallen angels that one of the ways that Quanin and her team were able to you know get through their deal with sinister didn't she have to give him some dna or didn't he take dna from her mm. i want to say it- that's right I want. I think that he took something of her, and like we're all like, "What the fuck is Sinister doing?" He's a creepy, almost you know, not creepy, almost. He is just a creepy man who we don't want to let near children. But so Sinister doing anything, you you always have an air of caution, like, "What is he up to?" Uh, and now we do know what he's up to. So I think he does have backups. I think he has clone backups of at least his Hellion team and certain other X-Men. Yeah, I have to go back and read Fallen Angels. All I remember about it is Paige looking like a melted Barbie. That's really all I remember. Oh, oh. she really did. She pulled her face off and... <laughs> oh. Which, no. 
I want to talk about that for a second. There are this team of misfits of misfits is really interesting because outside of empath and havoc, Mister Sinister, have you? I don't know if these other mutants have really reached the culture, like breached the cultural vernacular and breached that like that cultural barrier where people know who they are. A lot of these are, oh, I guess Wild Child, but like no one, no one gets a Wild Child. <laughs> that's, just, that's just a pup, and who's I, anyway. I, <laughs> I don't have problems with Wild Child. He was semi interesting in Alpha Flight, and then he became that. Oh, so. yeah. Like, when he was Wildheart, that was awesome. Like, when he was in control, had his facilities. Wasn't he, like, with Aurora, too, for a little bit? Honestly, that wouldn't surprise me. Oh, oh Aurora. She's with oh. everybody. But it's great. I, was, it, wait, was it Aurora, or was it uh, G- uh, Jean Marie? Because it's the personality. I don't that, think that, Jean Marie is with anybody. <laughs> I, yeah, I don't think it was Jean Marie. No, no, she, Jean Marie was a good girl, a good, good Catholic raised girl who didn't want to be evil. And then Aurora came and said, hi. <laughs> um, and then that so, third personality, her or whatever. Yeah. But anyway, sorry. Oh, oh, no. Um, misfits and talking about characters that didn't, that haven't really reached their, their cultural vernacular and giving this spotlight to them. So Hellions is about, you know, these are basically rehabilitation. It's kind of the rehabilitation team of, we're going to give you a chance to assimilate and be do good for Kakoa. Are there any characters that you wish you would see on here? Because with this title being so enjoyable, I think more people will be more inclined to read it and be able to see these characters in action. So are there any characters who, like, along those lines of need rehabilitation that you would love to see in this? Hmm. Ooh, you know, like weird throwback, but I'd love to see Zaladane come back because I really want somebody to explore that relationship with like, is she Magneto's daughter? Is she just Polaris's sister? Like what's going on with that? And I'd love to see some rehabilitation for her too. Okay. Let me think. I I should think of an answer for this question as well. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, not just posing. I think, would it be too on the nose for Hellion to join Hellions? I you know I don't I don't know so much that he's in need of rehabilitation. I think he might be a better fit for X Factor. You know I don't think he's in need of like criminal rehabilitation. Yeah, who I'd love to see more of also too. Sorry to throw another one is, but I don't think she, same alliance. I don't think she needs rehabilitation. I just want her to show up somewhere. Is Cat's Eye because you know, she's such a fascinating big goofy purple cat. I just want to see her somewhere. And I really need to see her interact with Rain again because, oh my god, that was so cute. I was just thinking that, well, that's not necessarily does Quanah need rehabilitation, but it can be somebody who you think, you know, needs more spotlight. And I was just thinking of Cat's Eye or um, Roulette from <gasps> the original yes. Hellions because out of all of those, the original Hellions, and I think it would be interesting to have Empath interact with them. Cat's Eye and Warpath were like pretty. They, I don't think they were bad. They were just this was the opportunity that they had to be. Uh, this is the opportunity they had to achieve their goals. Though I don't think Cat's Eye really had a goal. She just loved being a cat. <laughs> but out of all of them, I think. Oh, and uh, Jetstream was there. But I think <laughs> Roulette and Empath were probably the most evil yes, out of them. Yes, Roulette so really loved it. She was like super happy to drop that bookcase on, I think, Roberto. <laughs> so it was, 
that's a character who I don't think we've seen almost at all since the Hellions were killed. So I think it would be interesting to have another character like that who many people might not know and see how they interact not only with modern day, but someone that she does she does have previous experience with, which is an empath. Um, and, you know, what is, like, how does she... Basically, I know we have um, we have Domino as someone with luck powers, but like having someone control like there's I know there's a difference, but like I re- I I just want to see Roulette, and I think it would be something interesting. It is cool. Oh, her, her power is a little different in how she uses it. Like like Domino and Longshot, their luck is a little bit more subconscious; they can't really control anything. But Roulette could actually like control stuff, like positively or negatively. So yeah, she uh, if I'm not mistaken, she controls like. She controls specific probability, whereas Longshot and Domino, it's more the probability of themselves surviving something or getting lucky with something, if I'm not mistaken. <laughs> Longshot likes to get lucky with a lot of stuff. So. Uh, well, he got lucky with uh, Dazzler. There we go. Right? It was yeah. Longshot, and, Longshot and Dazzler. And then, and then they had Shatterstar, who's... Oh. Oh, that babe, that babe. Um, but yeah, that that's that's my pick. Uh, Evelyn, do you have someone that it doesn't have to specifically be rehabilitation? I don't have a pick. I can't think of anyone right now. That's, okay. that's absolutely fine. Yeah. Um, especially with you know this this new dawn of X, we are getting to see almost not everyone, but it, it's kind of almost like Smash Brothers where everyone's here, but not everyone <laughs> just yet. Um, so it's, it doesn't shock me because so many people are at least appearing and they're doing things. And even if we don't get their specific stories, they're up to something on Krakoa, whether it's just hanging out and having fun or going to the Green Bay bar at 6am. <laughs> it's, there's, it's, there's a, somewhere. it's the Green Lagoon, but I wish it were Green Bay. It's just, oh. a bunch of, it's just a bunch of cheese heads. <laughs> uh. <laughs> It's it's uh, at, at oh just taking kiki drinks for a bunch of Packers fans. <laughs> oh, I was gonna say, uh, I was even just gonna say, Krakoa is like cheese club, Ooh. <laughs> where they get they import cheeses and they just eat cheese. Oh wow! Emma Frost is the president. Oh uh, yeah. Oh, oh, Emma Frost is the president of everything that she uh, everything she does. She wouldn't have it any other way. <laughs> Though I, w- I would trust the MSAs. Okay. Before we keep derailing. I never thought that I would love Nanny and Orphan Maker. Like, the stories from X-Factors, like, that they were in, I was like, ugh, blah, I hate Nanny. But, like, in Hellions, Nanny is, like, the only one really going toe-to-toe with Sinister. She's like, you're a naughty boy, I'm going to put you in timeout. Oh, absolutely. Seeing Nanny, uh, this little egg robot that I'm not even (laughs) sure exactly what they are, really, you know, go toe-to-toe and challenge Sinister and say, if you don't line up, if you don't lead, we're going to have some problems and you're going to get a spanking. And I would pay to see that. But also... I for characters that I don't know, they gave them this these interesting quirks and personalities that I don't think show like were able to shine. Nanny was able to shine a bit in the first couple of issues of Hellions, but I don't think Orphan Maker got his fair share, his fair shake. But here, I think he's hysterical. 
Uh, it's one of the other scenes that I don't think we talked about was when they do see the pony, <sighs> and Mr. Sinister was like, "I don't, we're not, no, we're not taking this." Can we get the pony, please? Like, please, we, like he's like this giddy little kid, and I think it's an interesting characteristic and an interesting, you know, facet to have on this team where everybody else is very. Like, it's a, it, it goes in with this is a very serious mission and there's so much seriousness going on and you have this comedic character who acts like a child but is larger than all of them it's just (laughs) that just that juxtaposition is really interesting i just nothing better happened to that pony nothing no (laughs) no Oh my gosh, it's a strong pony. It's got Nanny and Orphan Maker. I would assume that oh, robotics would like be like so heavy. I didn't even see Nanny on there as well. Yeah, no. That's a well, that is a princess, so those otherworldly and stallions. <sighs> so as much as I loved the Hellion story, it's not necessarily a criticism, but I wonder how much that actually contributes to the overall storyline. While I appreciated the comedic break, I didn't feel like it really added to the Ten of Swords itself. It felt more like a Hellions book than a Ten of Swords, which is okay. But I would have preferred to see like Opaloon or Saturnine show up um, and at the very end or something, um, have something with a sword, uh, see something from the uh, enemy side. It just, it didn't feel like it was a, like a chapter within the Ten of Swords. It felt more like a a tie-in rather. And I would have preferred to have a little bit more tie-in with the actual plot um, with some comedic breaks. That was, that would be my negative. And it's not really that much of a negative. No, but I hear what you're saying in that in this large, huge crossover and that all the X titles have to stop what they were originally telling to help contribute to this narrative, the Hellions contribution doesn't feel like an actual contribution, which I think is on brand for the Hellions team <laughs> to not actually contribute, but like say they are. Yeah. Yeah. It would have, I think, I, I have to agree with you, Evelyn. I think there would have been nice to have, well, everything I did enjoy was here. I think maybe speeding it up just a bit to to have moments in the enemy territory, having Opal Luna Saturnine show up and throw a wrench in the plan, it didn't really feel like there was enough stopping them that had to do with the larger Ten of Swords issue. Right, exactly. It it felt more like these are problems you would encounter in Otherworld as opposed to specific problems of Otherworld Ten of Swords. So I see where you're coming with that, and I agree. Oh no, absolutely. It's probably, you know they can't succeed too, right? Because if they succeed, then you don't have to have you know, Betsy versus Itzka, you don't have to have Ileana versus Pog your Pog, you know, they can't succeed or else the event's pretty much dead, so. Dan, that would just, could you imagine they just hand wave everything and they're like, Hellions number six, all right, we got the swords, everyone, let's go back, and then they just go back. <laughs> okay. literally, I mean, yeah. As much as I enjoyed it, and I did enjoy this so much, it just, I don't know, it felt more like a, oh, how are we going to fit the Hellions title into Ten of Swords rather than, oh, we need Hellions and Ten of Swords, if that makes any sense. No, and I think it really does. And 
I, I have to think that the creation of their their mission is almost just weird because I feel like everybody who is on the council and trying to make this decision this decision would know better than to try to circumvent rules like this. It feels like a weird crapshoot that they're trying to do to get out of it, but I feel like they should know better. I feel like they should know this isn't going to work. I feel like they should know that trying to do this might cause problems. And I don't fully understand the why. Like, how are they like that desperate there's something about this entire reasoning for what what they're doing that i don't fully buy yet the only reasoning that i can think of is sinister is a hot mess he's let's just get him out of the council for a minute so we can talk like so the adults can talk is kind of why i got I, 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 yeah, no, <laughs> no, no, that might be right. <laughs> Actually, this is like, get him the hell out of here. He doesn't even know what plumage is. <laughs> <laughs> Until next time, Maddie, where can everybody find you? Uh, as always, you guys can find me on Instagram at, at the basically covetous man. Evelyn, where can everybody find you? Well, like I said, I'm Evelyn, the comic canary. You can find me at comic underscore canary at Twitter. Uh, uh, hey, this is Nathan. You guys can find me on Twitter and Instagram at DazzlerAOA. That's on Twitter and Instagram at DazzlerAOA. And I am Jonah, and you can find me over on Twitter and Instagram at Peak Jonah. Hellions number five, which was chapter six of X of Swords, written by Zeb Wells, art by Carmen Carnero, colors by David Curiel, and letters by VCs Ariana Marr. Now, in this issue, Sinister grows tired of sitting in a quiet council meeting that's not about him. So he mm-hmm. offers to send the Hellions into Otherworld <laughs> to steal the Arakan swords before the tournament begins and accidentally winds up having to lead them himself. Now, Otherworld is a dangerous place for any of the mutants during the Dawn of X because one of the major, major turning points of House of X Powers of Ten is the idea that mutants can be resurrected, that death is no longer a threat to them. And what we learned very early on in our first chapters of X of Swords is that death can be a threat to them on Otherworld. And as you were just saying, what having the deadliest vampire assassins in one of these realms, which is going to be in between, you know, it's, you might have to pass through it on your way from uh, Krakoa to Arako. Mm-hmm. Deadly assassins in the one place where mutants can die, there's lots and lots of stories and threats that can come from that. Most definitely. So I loved Hellions number five. I thought that this was one of the funniest, most clever and entertaining Mm -hmm. issues we've got in all of Dawn of X. Um, Mm -hmm. Let's hear from Arturo first. Arturo, what are your thoughts on Hellions number five? Well, I I popped into the other room and, uh, and it's appropriate that I'm on in two rooms on this one issue because this is the best issue I think of Hellions that we've seen yet. I just, I absolutely enjoyed it. It It's so funny. And I love seeing this side of Zeb Wells writing. Um, It was just incredible. This was um, the first half of this issue for me, the Quiet Council part. For me, was Parks and Rec Krakoa. (laughs) (laughs) And you could give me a whole book of this. I would would sit down for this every week. Um, There were so many scenes I loved. And the way he used characters like Exodus, like to get humor from Exodus because of the way his, you know, over-seriousness... 
plays off of Sinister's, you know, over mockingness and just they are a perfect pairing for this type of dialogue and like I think one of my favorite lines in this was the page where Exodus is like, It's settled then. The Hellions march into Iraq to end the tournament before it begins. Fearless Mr. Sinister will lead the way. And Sinister's <laughs> like, yeah. Wait, wait, what was that? What was that last part? What? Oh yeah. this magnitude isn't suitable for grunts, surely. They need their leader. They need Mr. Sinister. Show of hands. And everyone around the quiet council starts waiting his hands. And Sinister's just so flustered, like, damn it! The floor was mine, Bennett! <laughs> this is madness. The man doesn't know the difference between tassels and... <laughs> between tassels and epaulets. <laughs> I mean, oh yeah, God. it's just incredible, man. Zeb is killing it. The best the best Sinister I think we've ever seen on panel. Yes, mm-hmm. this... um, What they've done with Sinister here, and it's been a slow evolution, I think that... I want to give it to Kieran Gillen, saying that Kieran Gillen really shaped Sinister during his run, um, who's a character that I mean, other writers have, X-Men writers, there was one recently, I, I can't remember who it was, but I think a week or two ago on Twitter, an X-Men writer was like, I've written X-Men in the past, I've written these characters, I cannot definitively tell you what Sinister or Apocalypse's powers are. Like, they have lots of powers, like, they're really strong, and um, but like, they're so undefined because of the different ways they've been used and brought around and and Gillen did a really good job of defining Sinister and giving us in like giving us a a personality to him and making him so just biting and sassy <laughs> and Hickman definitely carried that into his take um and now we're seeing someone like Zeb Wells take it and define it even further and making these characters fit like making them fit as their pieces and they're finding their roles in the Quiet Council. They're finding their roles on Krakoa and the way the personalities play off. Like, again, I couldn't have imagined a year and a half ago that I would be laughing hysterically at Exodus and Sinister squibbling in like a Mutant City Council meeting. <laughs> I would not have expected that I would love John Greycrow as a character so much. Yeah. Um, like, I. There's things that Zeb Wells has done so quickly in five issues here, if it less than a trade of Hellions, that are remarkable. And these aren't really the main characters of the book. Like, the main character through the first four issues was kind of Havoc, mm-hmm. with Quanon being second. Um, but we're seeing, getting so much from these other characters, and I, I love this book. I, I love this book so much more than I thought I would when, you know, it was pitched as... Hey, you know, your your lost toys, you know, it's it's nanny and orchid maker <laughs> and scalp hunter and wild child and like and somehow this is this is one of the top books on the line. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, undeniably. Yeah, I oh my god. This honestly this is one of my favorites. And like for I feel like for once they're getting Sinister right. Cause I grew up with Sinister way back in the day. Like we're talking the nineties. Uh and you know, Sinister, like he looks like the big bad. He looks like he's, you know, going to be that boss battle. But Sinister always sends grunts out, always sends somebody else out first. He avoids fighting, quite honestly, as much as he can. He looks intimidating, but he doesn't necessarily want to get his hands dirty or ruffle his plumage. So (laughs) it's like, 
Finally. Dylan's run had some of the best of that. He made armies of weird, like, clone freaks mm-hmm. to send out and fight, like, that were hilarious. Um, I can't think of any specifically off right now, but Arturo, do you remember any of the um, the clone armies from... Uh, I, 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 rem- I remember that. I, I didn't realize when you were talking about Kieran Gillen that, that it was that run. I, I did read that. Um, I read it once. and So I don't remember anything super specific, but yeah, I guess you're you're right. That was really when we started seeing the like the sassier side of Sinister. And, and there's uh, been his '90s history is is not he's not well defined. Starting mm-hmm. with Inferno, it, when you go back and read Inferno, he's not defined at all. There is no character given to him, yeah. and I think that that gets lost on people because you're distracted by Maddie's underboob. But um, <laughs> like Sinister is nothing. Like he's just background mystery. He's literally named Mister Sinister. And he's some puppet master who's pulling the strings, but kind of, but not. And he doesn't actually get beaten. It's all like just about Maddie and the demons in limbo and stuff. And and then yeah. he's gone and we'll see him again later. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. We get more definition of him. Lobdell did add to the background of him messing with all the summers. That um, with the the Adam X stuff, no, maybe it wasn't Labdell. Maybe it was Nicieza during Labdell's run. Labdell was on Uncanny. Nicieza on the adjective list brought Sinister in and did the issues that were leading up and hinting towards the third Summers brother. The big reveal that there was a third Summers brother that was supposed to be Adam X came from mm-hmm. Sinister when he came to help Scott. He would pop up to help Scott because he was very, and he would tell him like, I'm very invested. I have a lot invested in the summers. Like when I take you and make you my bitch in the future, like I can't let someone (laughs) else kill you between now and then. And so Scott had to kind of like figure out how much can he trust Sinister during these times. Yeah, we got some, that started defining him. Then it was J.M. DeMatteis who wrote um, X Factor in between Peter David and Howard Mackey. And he did one where Malice takes over Havoc. So Havoc and Polaris are on a little vacation and retreat in Hawaii. um, And Malice takes over Havoc and Sinister shows up to save them. And literally it's because like, no, 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 no. I'm the only one who fucks with Summer's kids. Get out. (laughs) Like, no, you don't get to fuck with him. I fuck with him. That's my job. And so he saves Havoc because no one else is allowed to do that. Only him. Ah, like a protective big brother. (laughs) That's the type of, like, warped, I think, kind of power and humor, sadism, kind of selfishness, narcissism that I think... (laughs) Forms the sinister oh, that yeah, then definitely. definitely Gillen ran with, and now we're seeing Hickman and Wells really make this unique, wonderful character. Not wonderful like a wonderful person, but just oh, delightful to read. Absolutely, you're like you're invested in both his success and his failure. Because I was like, do do I want him to succeed? Because that is actually a decent plan. Or do I really want to watch the whole thing just blow up in his face? Oh, like I'm on the fence. Like overall, I sort of want him to win because that would mean everybody else wins. At the same point in time, this is sinister. This cannot be good for anybody. And that's the end of the book. Like Quanin says it for us, the final page, you know, they've empath, who we do learn can be a useful asshole, especially if you're in enemy <laughs> territory. Mm-hmm. Right? And he's going to get killed so good when this is over. Um, <laughs> cut in half oh oh he's gonna get killed so good um and if you haven't been reading the dawn of x books raven um 
just so you know, there are a couple books that have started having their like Kenny from South Park moments where they just they kill the same character every mission. Oh, I um, can't wait. They have their oh my god, uh, we killed Quentin in over the next course. Yeah, when you start reading and you see Quentin die, don't worry. <laughs> You'll get used to it real quick. The reason this opens with Empath being resurrected is because on their last mission, Greyco got tired of his bullshit and just killed him. <laughs> um, oh my god, I can't wait. I Oh man, somebody And now died. we have this issue ending with Quanin looking at Sinister, who probably the one good thing... I, my the one thing that I'm happy to have taken out of Fallen Angels because Fallen Angels was not for me. I did not appreciate it as a title. I know some people liked it, and I am happy that um, when anyone gets something out of a book, um, Fallen Angels was not for me. I do like that it established a relationship between Quanin and Sinister that gets to be built upon and paid off here. Yeah, and we see her turning to him at the end. This one's going to end badly, and Sinister's remark: "Don't they all, my dear? Don't they?" All? <laughs> right. You're like. Yeah, no, I'm pretty sure we all we yeah no yeah yeah we ended this way often. Yeah, I love I love this this team. I love this book so much. I love when Sinister loses his cape to to uh, mm. to Jamie, and he's all thrown by it, and he's just like like he's telling some random villager. Uh, I usually have a cape. If you're wondering why I look like this. <laughs> I usually have a cape if you're wondering why I look like this. I have that written in my notes. Okay. Can I, I have five I seconds to think wardrobe before you start in on me, please? Right. And then he has Empath, Power Trip, Saturnine's Party, and he ends up with her cape. I almost died laughing. I love that. I love that that was his priority. Oh my God. Like, ooh, wait I'm a like, minute. Really? So, and before that, going into Sinister losing his cape, Um, we got a good right he had to visit jamie and so he had to parlay with jamie braddock which also was hilarious that then jamie gave them the stolen horses that jamie was going to get in trouble for having i'm like what a whole D &D maneuver is that well we get a jamie braddock that reminds me and you know and i mean this in a very good way because jamie is not a very well-defined character um Mm. jamie's another one that has in much of what we've seen from him over the last 20, 30 years of X-Men, which is not a lot, he's just kind of crazy. He tends to get drawn uh, like kind of half drooling with his eyes going in different directions, running around in a pair of tidy whities mm-hmm. And so we're getting a more kind of normalized what this character shouldn't be normal. He shouldn't be boring. But we're getting like what a healthier version of Jamie Braddock could be both in, um, a lot in X in the pages of Excalibur. And the way Zeb Wells draw, uh, writes him, which is a little different than Teeny, reminds me a lot of Varric from Legend of Korra. Oh. I don't know if anyone else got that. Mm-hmm. No, but uh, Julie! <laughs> yes. Oh, my goodness, yes. Oh, man. Yeah, the moment you said that, I'm like, oh, my God, you're right. <laughs> Yes, the little, like, hint of madness and mania, you know, thinking a step ahead, completely ignoring, you know, the lines in the box. I made my own box. (laughs) You're like, oh, sweet God. (laughs) But yeah, they they did it. They did it well. He is, you know, he's not stable, per se. Uh, But yeah, like, they, they... they made him far more interesting, and honestly, it does take a, a, a bit of a wit to go, yeah, no, horses. Oh, you know what? Crap, this is going to get me in trouble. Hey, you want the horse? It's like, 
Oh my god. Oh yeah. my god. And he outsmarted Sinister, trading yes. him stolen horses for the cape, which is yes. just so great. I'm like, oh my god. I was I almost died laughing. I'm like, yep, yep. Well, because when you have a charisma that is high enough, or at least uh, mental instability quirky enough. <laughs> You can pretty much get what you want. And honestly, I think it came down to that. You could see Sinister going, how do I get out of this? Crap, I can't get out of this. I'm basically working with a madman. And if I don't give a little leeway on this, it's really going to mess with all of my plans. So I guess we go with his crap. (laughs) And continuing into the rest of X of Swords... This madman is the gate in between Krakoa and Otherworld. We got two data pages in this issue for two mutually opposed, not just say mutually opposed, but two mirror image worlds, realms in Otherworld. So we have the Dryador, which was the realm of fish people that got taken over and conquered by Ameth and the Arakans um, mm-hmm. at the beginning of chapter one of X of Swords. And we have... 180 degrees on the other side of the wheel, Avalon, which is the realm connected to Krakoa and has essentially been conquered and taken over by uh, the Earthlings and the Krakoans. So we have the two realms opposite each other that enter. They go directly to Starlight Citadel. They connect Otherworld to Arako and Amenth and Krakoa and Earth, respectively. They've both been conquered by those worlds they're connected to. And for us on our side, Jamie is the seat of power. He's the regent, and he is, now that uh, Saturnine blew up the gate directly to the Starlight Citadel, he is the passage. Like, all passage into the tournament, and from both directions. Mm -hmm. If the Arakans try to come to Krakoa, for the Krakoans to get into Otherworld goes through him. Mm -hmm. They put the absolute power in the hands of a madman. Which I like. It reminded me a little of Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, where it's like, who can you put in this position of power? And, Mm -hmm. you know, it's the the senile old man with the invisible cat. Mm -hmm. Well, because if you put anybody else in that seat of power, they might be bribable, per se. But with Jamie, he's so already unpredictable that, sure, you could bribe him one moment, but he could give you a stolen horse that could get you tracked down. I mean, (laughs) it's smart to put him in power, and it's also scary to put him in power. Yes, and and he has the connections to Otherworld, and he has the nobility, and the connections to Krakoa. Like, he is a fairly good in-between, like... Honestly, Brian probably would have been better, I guess. But Jamie's the mutant, and now Brian's the well. We'll you know, flipping mm-hmm. ahead into what happens in Excalibur thirteen. Like Brian's going to play a key role there as well. Uh, you know, assuming that uh, Krakoa wins the tournament, or you know, doesn't mm-hmm. lose, uh, Brian and Jamie in Avalon is going to be a big part of anything connected to Otherworld Arako moving forward. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, and yeah. for me, like, Jamie's a character that if he had not been resurrected, um, you know, I, I don't think I would have I would have cared. You know what I mean? I, I wouldn't have been pining away for why why don't they bring back Jamie? Because he's such a complicated character that, you know, it's uh, it, it's he's not any other mutant. You know, he's, he's like a game changing mutant. And this was this was the first issue that I've 
actually like cared about the character. And I don't know. And I, I mean, I guess maybe that's a credit to Zeb's writing. Um, he was just on page just for, for a couple of pages here. Mm -hmm. And I, I just, I really, really enjoyed him more than I have in the entire Excalibur run so far. Uh, yes. So yeah, I'm glad he's in it, man. I'm, I'm glad, I'm glad we've got Jamie around. He, he's And he needed to be like once Hickman put him on the official list of Omega level mutants and made Omega level mutants, the most important resource of Krakoa. Um, he needed to be in some sort of vital role. Although, as we said, he's a personality you don't necessarily want in some sort of vital role. So I think both the writers and the characters, like from both levels, did a good job of finding a way to use him and make him work. Yes. Mm -hmm. That suits the story and allows him to be there as as it would like as would be needed. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I, I, and, I and, find myself rooting for him now. Yeah, it, it's also interesting because how often do you see characters with visible mental illnesses or mental differences in pivotal roles? So it's it's interesting, like. Yeah, sure, there could be somebody technically better, but wow, we've you've given it to somebody who there's going to be some very interesting workarounds and a whole lot of great potential for very interesting storylines as well, because you have to now navigate life and death, basically, with somebody who has a very deep-seated mental illness that makes them not only perceive the world very differently, but react to the world very differently. Yes. And that's something, uh, you know, we've been hinted at that post-X of Swords we'll be seeing more of in the pages of X-Factor as they deal with the resurrection protocols and, you know, characters with disabilities or um, conditions, characters with things that make them different. How much do they getting to choose how much they want coming back? You know, mm -hmm. if a character suffers from depression. Do they want to be brought back with or without that depression? If, mm -hmm. you know, a character has lost a limb like Forge, do they want to be brought back? Do they want that limb back? Does how much of their identity is wrapped up in being the person with the disability? Does it change them to lose that disability? Are they mm -hmm. less than if they keep it? Um, there's a lot of things that Leah has already said she's going to be exploring with the resurrection protocols and, and with characters that... I'm really looking forward to in that book on the other end of X of Swords. Yeah, that should be like super interesting to watch because I mean, they, I think they even said it in Hellions that, yeah, we can't ensure that we could even bring you back properly because now there's something being rewritten or there's something off about the data. We're not getting everything back the way it should be. So, yeah, you could end up with characters that are. That vitally and vastly different than what they were, say, even just a couple of episodes or a couple of issues ago. Yes. All right. Last thoughts on Hellions number five. Raven? I think it was beautifully written. I I, I was I was actually very pleased with how they fleshed out certain characters that have been around forever and honestly given them uh, an even better role and even more draw to be invested in them, whether they're the good guy or if they're the bad guy. It's, they did this wonderfully and I'm really invested in the entire story arc just because of these two issues that I read. Arturo? 
Uh, just give me more. I just want more of Hellions. I, I can't wait to see what happens in Otherworld. I hope Zab stays on this book for a good long while. And I would love to see different characters join the cast. I think there's a lot of opportunity there where you could play with the roster a bit. But yeah, just, just top, top, top shelf thick right now. Mm-hmm. I, I have been, you know, very vocal about how much I love this issue. I thought it was one of the most clever and entertaining issues we've gotten. I'd say I probably laughed the most that I had since the first two issues of Marauders, which were all just a drunk Kate Pride um, sailing <laughs> around blowing shit up, which uh, was also very, very good and entertaining. Hey, everybody. I'm Nico at Nico Action. That's N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N on Twitter and Instagram. I'm Kyle, and you can find me on both Twitter and Instagram at Drantis82, D-R-A-N-T-I-S-8-2. Guys, I'm Maddie. You can find me at, at the basically covetous man. And I'm Jonah. And you can find me over on Twitter and Instagram at Peak Jonah. We hope you survive this experience. Just like D Self survived that building crashing down on her. You know, I couldn't think of any better reason than to convocate the original This Is Xers than to try and take a stab at this sort of anachronistic, but clearly very right now, juggernaut miniseries. And I guess there's no better place to start. Hey, Maddie, do you got some deets for us on this book? Yeah, today we're going to be covering Juggernauts issues one and two, written by Fabian Nicieza, art by Ron Garney, color by Matt Miller, and letters by VCs Joe Sabino. So fresh out of a stint in limbo, Kane Marco finds himself working for damage control when he runs into a group of otherwise homeless teens and a single powered individual among them. I don't know. This was this was a, a weird slow start, especially for. For, uh, someone like myself who has not an extensive history of reading the character. Yeah, you know, I, I'm i going to start with I'm a huge Ron Garney guy. I am, like, obsessed with Ron Garney. I think his work on Daredevil and Wolverine stand up to some of the best of his career. And the man has never found a black marker he didn't want to kill. And this guy loves his heavy use of black markers, even down into the penciling portion. I mean, you're not supposed to use inks till he inks, but Ron Garney finds a way to make it beautiful. The art and the fact that I guess I'm super engaged on Kane after all these years was the only thing that really kept me reading through this first issue. Yeah, I agree. I really enjoyed the art in the first issue, and it drew me in in a way that I wasn't expecting, and it kept me going when I was feeling more frustrated with the story, I guess. I have to echo the sentiment that I really did enjoy the art. I think Kane looks super hot when he doesn't have his helmet on. And everything about the art really helped encompass what the story they were trying to tell. While there were parts of this that I really did enjoy, I feel like there wasn't really anything new with this story. This is just yet again another villain trying to reform, but this time he's not allowed on Krakoa. And I feel like it's just been done before. You know, it, it kind of made me think of a, a thing that would happen from time to time at Marvel. And I guess I'm not ready to accept what this means about me. But, you know, when a guy did Thor for 10 years, let's say we're talking about like a Tom DeFalco. You know, he did Thor for a while. He had his hand on every book in the Marvel Universe. And he was known for helping to create the voice of young characters as the lines were trying to transition. And after a number of years now, you know, like a lot of gay men my age 
from, you know, where I'm from, I guess it's hard for me not to be drawn to a good old fashioned muscle transformation. If you've got like a nerdy, unassuming guy who suddenly has the power to hulk out, but still look kind of hot and human, I'm in, right? I was replaying Crash Bandicoot the other day, uh, Crash of Cortex, and that big dog guy that Crash fights all the time, he's a little too hot. He's too hot, okay? He's too hot. I don't need it. I don't need it. It's just too hot. Okay. Uh, Jaime, Jaime, the, the hypersexual muscle dog, way too hot. And, <laughs> you know, if you can get a good tiny, muscular... Tiny, tiny. Tiny. <laughs> if you can get tiny, the hypersexual muscle dog in there, I'm in. I find it hot, right? And so they gave Tom DeFalco the opportunity to go write uh, a little bit more Thor. And he got to write a follow-up miniseries to Thunderstrike, where Thunderstrike's son gains the power to transform basically into his dad. And look, I watched enough late 80s movies about boys turning into their fathers, like, like magical transformation. Everybody gets that sequence in the mirror where they're really excited about their adult penis. And so, like, that really imprinted on me as a kid, I guess. And so, you know, when they said that Tom DeFalco was going to be writing a Thunderstrike mini, I was like, I got to get this. I got to read that. That that hits all my buttons, that he transforms. And, you know, I went back to reread it a couple of years ago. And I think other than my old timer blinders, I really couldn't figure out what it was about that book that I was so excited about. I kind of think we've hit a point where it seems impossible. It literally seems impossible. But Fabian Nicieza, I think he's just he's getting the old timer books now. Oh, you can come back and write that character you wrote that time. They let him come back and do more Cable Deadpool. And now here he is, kind of like doing some old school juggy in a way that's kind of like putting its nose up at Krakoa. Kind of, sort of. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, I do. <laughs> About the hot dog named Jaime, I guess. <laughs> well, is Juggernaut not a mutant, like, in any capacity? No, he's not. So he's Juggernaut one of those... Juggernaut is not a mutant. Yeah, he's one of those guys that uh, they thought he might be a mutant at one point, or they, they thought maybe that his mutant power was mutantly being a mutant. Like... There's always been some reason that somebody here or there might have secretly been a mutant all along, and they wind up pulling back on it, or the next writer doesn't know what to do with it. I think there was at one point an implication that perhaps Juggernaut was special in a non-human way. I believe there was at one time that appreciation within the character. But, you know, I kind of feel like the best explanation of this issue came from Kyle. The other day, Kyle said to me, I'm just double checking. So that whole book is just Juggernaut fucking up all the time, right? Yeah, that's pretty much what I said. It's it's him trying to be better and just making everything worse instead. And it really is, unfortunately, what I feel like they're trying to do here. Yeah, yeah. It's it's like the the polar opposite of, of Hellions. Which is a book about redemption in the biggest way. Yeah. Now, I guess, I, you know, I have affinity for Kane because Kane is a character I grew up with and... I've seen him try to, you know, um, gain credibility as a hero a number of times. And some of my favorite stories about the X-Men involve Kane trying to become a better man. Maddie, you started this off with, I don't have a lot of experience with Kane. So how did you feel about getting this weird side view of like muscle Vereen? 
<laughs> it's been interesting so far. Two issues in. I still need a little bit of clarification on a number of things, namely his time in limbo, what that meant for his separation from the Crimson Gem of Sidorak, how it is that he's retrieved new armor and access to the gem again, what the hell is going on with Hulk. I wasn't even aware that Juggernaut at any point had been something of an anti-hero. You know, I always imagined him as, you know, Magneto's henchman. You know, so <laughs> um can you correct me if i'm wrong was his stint in limbo when iliana was like kind of evil and they put her in jail and then she was like my brother can control the stone well so his time in limbo um is a little bit more complicated than that because uh he was limboed in if i'm not mistaken rosen County. Yes. Uh, so that, that's, that's the stuff that was happening at the same time as uh, Age of X-Men? Yeah, Rosen yeah. Kent, the very negative, dark, uh, scary worldview. Everybody's uncanny. dying. And, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's when it happened. So it was literally the books just before Hoxpox, and that makes it kind of shocking because not that I feel that the entire Rosencanny era has been treated with um, not even disrespect, but I do feel like most of that era has been sort of purposely looked away from with some great intensity. And I find myself fascinated that some of Ileana's less attractive work is getting referenced so comfortably. Because for what it's worth, I think Kane is a character that is best served by being an anti-hero. I don't think Kane is super lovable as a bad guy. There's nothing there. He's just this blank slate of like crap. Like he's just a bad guy when he's a bad guy because I'm tired of hearing I'm I'm tired of hearing my brother is so cool. I I don't get love. Like all right, be your own person. I don't need to hear that you're upset that you're not someone else. I would rather know that you're interested in being who you are. You know what I'm trying to say? And so I guess for me, I I want to see more from a Kane story than just a rehash of why Xavier and not me. And I don't know that Nicieza is in a mental place as a writer from that era to ever really move the character forward. Now, one of the things that I did most love, though, is D-Cell. I don't know if it's because her name is like Duracell or there's something I don't know called the D-Cell, but I think well, she's a... They, they, oh. they, did, they did make that joke, though. Yeah, you know, I really think that there's something to be said about this young, smart character. She represents something that we just don't really get a lot from the X-Books, which is an interesting non-mutant. Not trying to be offensive, but, you know, we get a lot of interesting mutants and the humans kind of get the shaft. How did you feel, Jonah, about a young, like... She's really clearly meant to be at, like, your age group. So how do you feel about this new character coming into Juggernaut's life? Well, I mean, she's a YouTube star, insert equivalent of whatever that was. Uh, so obviously she's supposed to be a stand-in for my generation. Of well, Yeah, that's, that's how that works. She's a live streamer. It's how she makes her money. It's... I, well, I like D-Cell, and I am interested to see what she does provide. It, again, just harkens back to what I said earlier. It's this big, beefy, strong person trying to overcome their evilness, and they have a younger, smaller woman to help them do it. And it's I feel like it's just a little cliche at this point. While D-Cell herself might be an interesting character, the story that they're putting her in I don't feel like is interesting enough, and I feel like the character warrants something cooler, something a little more interesting than whatever's going on with Kane because it is just it does just feel like a rehash of my brother's cooler and he telepathically visited me and said I'm 
not allowed on Krakoa. What will I do now? Well, and, you know, can I, can I give an example of how I feel that this book is being lazy while not being disrespectful? Yeah, in the first issue, In the first issue, D-Cell refers to her live stream platform as her uh, RocksTube channel, and in issue two, it is her U-Rocks channel. So yeah. I understand that it's a play of Roxxon being the Google equivalent, but yeah. at the same time, con- continuity matters. Especially intercontinuity in what we know to only be a five-issue miniseries. Like, there's there's only so many places to go. You know what I mean? Like, wow. Now, I love that you brought up the second issue because the second issue brought up someone that I'm glad to see here. Now, Immortal Hulk is the biggest fucking book on the planet right now. If you're not criminally obsessed with X-Men, it's because you're criminally obsessed with Immortal Hulk and you just can't afford the appearances. So I have to kind of question how Immortal Hulk really fits into the same world as Hoxpox X-Men in a world that we're saying Juggernaut doesn't really belong in. And I would just love to get your guys' kind of take on this out-of-nowhere appearance of the Immortal Hulk. Oh, um... I was I was annoyed with the way that Hulk was treated in in this. That it's I I have absolutely no idea what's been going on within the Immortal Hulk, but it's obvious that this current state of the character is not the mindless animal that we've seen in the past that just destroys everything. And for Diesel to convince Kane to attack Hulk uh, without any reason behind it? it? It made me mad. Well, I also as somebody who is criminally obsessed with House and Powers, I have not had the time nor the nor the resources to get into Immortal Hulk, but more the time because thank you, Marvel Unlimited. Uh, right? Right? Can anybody give just for the sake of clarity an explanation of who this incarnation of the Hulk is? Because I wouldn't exactly say based on the artist's depiction of the Hulk during the confrontation with with the town hall meeting. He seemed very smug and, and unconcerned. So This is this is Bruce Banner. This is Bruce Banner. This and is Bruce is- Banner with the awareness that the Hulk is tethered to reality by something known as the Green Door, which allows him to basically not die and come back and like possess bodies and basically the Hulk is a psychic body horror parasite tied to our dimension by the spooky door. So <laughs> it's really quite a book. <laughs> well, that just jumped to the top of my list. Right? <laughs> like it's it's not my favorite book of all time. I really like it and I really like what Al Ewing's doing, but I I probably need it to be a little faster than it is if I hadn't gotten into it and been able to read 34 issues all at once. I don't think I'd have been as happy. I get that. I respect that. Now, Kyle, had you seen the Hulk in any recent amount of time? No, not at all. I mean, I saw I well I saw his connection with She-Hulk and the uh, the Green Door uh, in the Immortal She-Hulk, but mm. that, but that was pretty much it. I haven't really seen Hulk since was he in War of uh, War of the Realms? I think he was, but I don't think okay. he was a huge factor. Yeah, I I have to be honest. I I think I'm 
I, I like Hulk Vereen a lot. And <laughs> <laughs> I actually really like Hulk Vereen. I think he's kind of adorable. And uh, I like any time that crew of writers get their hands on characters. Now, okay, so we've talked a little bit Juggernaut. We've talked a little bit about the Hulk. We've talked a little bit about D-Cell. But I think for me, the most shocking part was the one-page appearance from Xavier. That shitty little psychic Xavier being all like, oh, I'm a spooky ghost, was like... It really was surprising to see him show up. I almost felt like, wouldn't you not be allowed to touch the X-Men? But sure enough, I feel like that's, it's really five different kinds of powerhouses here. We have a mystical powerhouse. We have a body horror gamma radiation powerhouse. We have Xavier, whose looming threat is so great, he towers over the book as a conceptual entity. And we have D-Cell, who I think, you know, no offense to everybody else, is the most interesting part of the book. How do you guys feel about where we are two-fifths of the way into what is only supposed to be five issues? Yeah, you know, not great. (laughs) (laughs) I, I honestly I, I don't feel great and I'm I'm looking I'm looking ahead I'm looking to the the cover art for the next issue for any semblance of a clue and I'm just it's staring back at me with nothing I I couldn't tell you if D Cell never appeared again I would be just as shocked as I would be you know if I, is this just a story of came repeatedly trying and failing what is what is the thread how how does d cell factor into this how did the hulk factor in this so are you asked to your point is is this just like a what's what of like a day in the life of juggernaut and is, if so, is this is this just a slice of life juggernaut trying and failing story well slice of life that's your thing jonah how do you feel i mean you actually had the most positive things to say about it in the green room yeah, so there were things I did find interesting besides D-Cell. I like the idea of Kane trying to at least do some good with his life. Because I feel like at this point he doesn't have a purpose. He doesn't have X-Men to terrorize. He barely is able to get Sidorak to let him be his champion, I guess. So what does Kane have left to do? All of his... uh, He was in the Brotherhood of Evil X-Men, right? Of Evil Mutants? At some point, I'm sure he was. You know, the Brotherhoods had more incarnations than is reasonable. And sometimes they're led by Mystique. And sometimes they're led by Magneto. And sometimes they're led by, like, Vanisher or Black Tom. But it's not even good Black Tom. It's, I'm a tree, Black Tom. And you're just like, you're not that threatening if it takes you a week and a half to cross the lawn. (laughs) <laughs> uh, Juggernaut was, though, uh, I've looked it up for you, a member of the Brotherhood. There you go. Yeah, so like he doesn't have he doesn't have a Brotherhood to uh, go fall back on. So really, what is there left for him to do? No, and I appreciate him trying to find his purpose. And maybe it was the art that I enjoyed more than the actual storytelling. I guess it's. Slice of Life is a weird way to put this because there's too much action for this to be Slice of Life, but they're acting like it is a Slice of Life. Like, there's so much focus on Kane as a person and his narrative and the overall story of this Marvel Universe and what he's doing that they're trying to mask a Slice of Life with action, but those two things don't coincide with one another. When you have a Slice of Life, you're more meant to be looking at the much slowed down moments a slice, of, a slice of life literally in its name is you're looking at something as a slice of that life. I should be able to insert myself into that scene because that should be a part of somebody's life. That's how it should be. But this is 
a weird halfway measure between both of them that just doesn't doesn't personally work for me. So Kyle, I guess my question for you is, does this halfway measure between these two ideas kind of even fit what we're talking about, where Juggernaut himself is halfway between forms? Mm, oh, jeez. <laughs> um, I really don't know. Um... Are you reserving judgment till we have Thruggernaut and Forgernaut and Fivegernaut? Quintupler not. Quintupler not. I, I, <laughs> I kind of like that. Um, yeah, yeah, I think I am. I, I don't think that I've seen quite enough to make any kind of judgment about how this is happening or how this is being uh written i guess you know and i i feel like uh, a big question for me at least in trying to reserve my own judgment is looking forward how does this factor into any of the current worlds within the marvel universe how does this clearly kane doesn't fit into the hox pox uh krakoa of marvel and now we're crossing over into immortal hulk so where where what is the point where does this story lie well that brings me to two responses number one maybe that's what they're doing maybe they're testing the waters to see how versatile juggernaut is maybe there's room for him on an avengers or a defenders and maybe that's what we're seeing we're seeing a goodbye to his old self in favor of a new self where i want to know where he got this new armor from and the other thing this made me think is um, I now need the Juggernaut and the Stepford Cuckoos to kind of merge, and I need uh, quintuple Juggernauts, and I was like, what would you call a Juggernaut-Cuckoos combination? And I was like, oh, they'd be Juggalos. <laughs> oh. Yes. Yes. So, guys, going forward, what are you hoping to see from this book? I know myself... I want to see a reveal on where this new armor came from and what it actually means. You know, they didn't say the Crimson Sword of Sidorak for Ten of Swords, so I don't think there really is anywhere for him to go in the X-Men. But I don't know. He's still a character with merit, so I want to see how his new backstory is going to lead him forward. Does anybody else have any guesses on what might happen to everybody's favorite Juggernaut? Because you're not allowed to like Colossus as Juggernaut. You're just not. Oh God, that that one. Yeah, that I one think I think bad. he's Juggernaut going to be in much of anything after this book ends. <laughs> <laughs> that was a great Jokernaut. But if he uh, was, but if he was a Jigolo, would be would he be Juggernaughty? Ooh, he'd be Jigglenaughty. Ooh, no. no ooh, ooh. No, but at Christmas he can be the Jinglenaught. What is he on the naughty or nice list? What I want to see is some kind of transformation of Kane beyond the physical transformation that we see when he dons the armor. I kind of want to see him take on like like a role as an external agent supporting Krakoa, but not actually being part of Krakoa, I guess. Okay, almost like an operating partner. <laughs> yeah, yeah, kind of. Like, okay. like going places where mutants are, aren't welcome. Yeah, alright. I could definitely see that being a role that would even help him earn his brother's forgiveness but that's it i hope to see more d cell and to determine whether she actually is or is not a mutant yeah is she I, or isn't she? I wouldn't hate it you know the way uh explodey boy popped up in the pages of x-men i know it's not exactly the same thing because she's said to not be a mutant but i'd be excited to see d cell reappear at some point hickman hickman fall for her 
Love her. Well, at least give an explanation as to where her powers come from then, because if, uh, like, are there people in the Marvel Universe born with powers that yeah. aren't from Asgard or a different world? Yeah, metahumans. Okay. Science yep. experiment, yo. Yeah, science experiment. Well, it's not born with it. Well, no, no, like, but, like, it's in the air, so now you're born with it. It's not Mabel. Ah, oh, damn you. Ugh. <laughs> oh. God, I'm stopping this immediately before I need to put us all in the crimson uh, bands of Sidorak. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for coming out for the original Core 4, coming back with a little bit more, covering a juggernaut, which, like it or not, we have three more to go. God help us all. I have been Nico Action at N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N on Twitter and Instagram. I've been Kyle at Drantis82, D-R-A-N-T-I-S-8-2 on both Twitter and Instagram. I'm Maddie at the basically covetous man. And I'm Jonah at Peak Jonah. Ladies.